Our Old Testament reading comes from Genesis chapter 8. Um, this is the story of, of some of what happened at the end of the flood. So kids, this is part of the story of Noah. If you know the story of Noah, this is what happened as the waters were abating. This is Genesis 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the windows of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Now you know, uh, I assume, this story, the story of Noah and the flood. It's a testament to the grace of God dis despite uh, really incredible evil in mankind. Though all the world was evil, uh, even to an extent that's, that's almost hard to fathom, but I guess not that hard, Yet God showed his grace to one man, to Noah. He called Noah to build an ark, that is to say a large boat that would preserve him and a remnant of all of the animal life on earth through this cataclysmic flood that otherwise would destroy all other life, this judgment from God. The, the passage that we've just read picks up as the waters are subsiding. 
We're told that God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God didn't forget about Noah. To remember or call to mind, especially in this context, is is something that carries with it the the connotations of covenant. It's, It's covenantal language. God had promised to save Noah and his family and all of these creatures. And so he remembers that promise. On the basis of that promise, which he has not forgotten, he now fulfills his word. And so the waters subside. And there are two main things. There's so much, of course, that you know, we could look at here and, and, and talk through. But I want you to notice two primary things about what happens at this point. First, the way that God made the waters subside as Noah and his family were safe within the ark is given to us in the second part of verse 1. We're told, and God made a wind to blow over the earth and the waters subsided. As God remembers those that he has safely preserved in the ark, the, the power or active force of his fulfilling his promise is a great wind that blows over all of the earth. Where else in scripture can you think of that God uses a wind to make a way in water? I say it that way intentionally. Hopefully it it calls it to mind. In the Exodus, as the people of Israel were brought out of Egypt, God sent a strong wind in order to part the Red Sea for the Israelites to cross. And so the Exodus is in a way pictured as a similar act to what God did in the flood. And both of these events, events of water and wind, are picked up again in the New Testament to describe for us what baptism is and what baptism means. But for now, just hold on to that idea, right? Wind, wind and water. The wind that dries up the water, makes a way through the water. The second thing I want you to notice is the dove. Noah chooses a dove to send out to see if it's safe for him and his family and the other animals to leave the ark. And he sends out the dove three times. At first, it returns empty. He sends it out again. It returns with an olive branch. And finally, he sends out the dove, and it doesn't return. The dove disappears from the narrative. But I would put before you today that the dove did not leave the narrative of Scripture altogether. The dove shows up again, at least symbolically. The narrative picks up once again. When another baptism takes place, this time in the Jordan River, and we have recorded the experience of John the Baptist, as he says this, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. The sermon text today is from John chapter 1. Hopefully that's not a surprise to you at this point. Uh, We've been in John for some time now. 
Uh, We'll be reading verse 19 through uh, verse 34. This is again the the testimony of John the Baptist, particularly around when he announced the coming of Christ. Hear the word of the Lord. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming down, uh, coming toward him, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he, who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is God's holy and inspired word for us this morning. Now we've looked at uh, this, this witness from John the Baptist before. We've looked at some of these titles that are given for who Christ is. And uh, there's, of course, much more that can be said. So much more will, will be said throughout the rest of this gospel about who Christ is, right? He is the Lamb of God. He's the Son of God. He is uh, one who is greater than me, though he comes after me because he was before me. He is all of these things. But today we're going to zoom in a little closer on just one of the things that John testifies about Jesus, specifically that he is the one on whom the Spirit of God descended and remained. Jesus was the one on whom the Spirit descended, which means that it is in Jesus Christ that a new creation has begun, that a new ark has been built, that a new exodus has been led, and that a new anointing has been given. Read with me again verse 32 and 33. And John, it says, bore witness. Remember, John is a witness, right? He is kind of the the archetypal witness. What does it look like to point other people to Jesus? Well, look at John. What does John do? So John uh, bore witness and says this, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. 
and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me that he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit descends, notice that it's like a dove, and it remains on Jesus. The Spirit of God remains on him, descends and remains. This happened at the time of Jesus' baptism by John, and although here in John's gospel, uh, John the disciple's gospel, not to be confused with John uh, the baptizer, he doesn't specifically mention Jesus' baptism in the same way that all the other gospels do, Uh, but we know that this is when this was all taking place because the other gospels tell us that the Spirit descended after Jesus had been baptized by John, so it explicitly ties it to that occasion. Now, John, as in all of the other Gospels, puts a special focus on the baptism of Jesus, and particularly on the descending of the Spirit upon him. We're accustomed to thinking about baptism in pretty simple terms. You know, baptism is is a kind of symbolic uh, ritual, washing with water, and it's mostly here so that we can debate you know, who should be baptized and how much water we should use when we baptize. And that's really fun. I love that, right? I'm not, I'm not saying we can't do that sometimes. Uh, that, that is good fun. But there's so much more that's going on here. All, for all of the gospel writers, but, but particularly for our purposes, John is saying a lot more about baptism, about Jesus' baptism, about, about the importance of it all, the importance of the Spirit of God descending upon Christ. And in order to understand what exactly he's saying, you have to start in the beginning. This is why already in this series we've read from, from Genesis chapter 1. It's why today we read from Genesis chapter 8, because it's all important backdrop and context to understand what John is telling us about Jesus. The first thing that's being communicated about Jesus is that he is the beginning of a new creation. There's a new creation happening, and it's all centered upon the person of Jesus Christ. We very often, throughout Scripture, have the connection of water and the Spirit of God. And that all begins in the beginning, right? It it all starts right from the beginning. We're told in Genesis 1 that at the time of creation, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters. I'm maybe taking a little bit of license. I don't want to overstep what I should, but I don't think it'd be too far of a stretch to say that the Holy Spirit hovered much like a dove over the waters in the beginning. The Spirit of God hovering over water is a sign that God is creating something. The Spirit applying, uh, acting upon the Word of the Father. In Jesus Christ, He was beginning a new work of creation, not 
not a work starting from nothing, but a work that would recreate, reform, refashion, reshape, and renew what sin had made a wreck of. The way this new creation begins is in Jesus Christ himself. He is the, the beginning point, right? The word from the Father, right? As God spoke, and so all things came into existence, so he speaks most clearly in the fullest way through Jesus Christ. He is, Jesus is, the, the Adam of a new creation, right? Through him and in him, God is bringing and has now brought renewal to mankind, right? And you know what a mess the world has become. You know what a mass people have become. You know how depraved and sinful and perverted and disturbed and violent and dark humanity has gotten. You know how uh, sinful you are in your own heart. You know how bad things have gotten, in other words. But God is not the kind of God to let sin win. He isn't going to let sin and the devil have the final word with his world that he made. And so he begins a new creation in Christ, and all who are in him, we're told, become a new creation, a part of that new creation. You, if you have or will trust in Christ, you can be made new. Right? And how many of you can testify to that? How many of you can bear witness to the creative power of God as he has renewed you. That in Christ you've been given new hearts and new desires and new love and new motivation, right? New life and, and overflowing joy and hope. New families or marriages or relationships. Just the, the various ways that God has created something that, that didn't seem even possible. Right? Hasn't he already begun that work? Haven't you seen that in your life? I imagine that you have. And this work isn't over. Right? It's only just begun. That's the point here. At, at Jesus' coming, here at the start of his ministry, it's being declared to us that this work of new creation is beginning, that it has been started. That's the point. The work of his spirit now continues as he continues to renew. And one day, at the coming of Christ, that work will be completed. It will be finished. But you should recognize that in the spirit descending and then remaining upon Jesus at his baptism, it's, it's being declared that there is a, a work of new creation that has begun. Likewise, the fact that the Spirit descended upon him at his baptism and descends like a dove, this should call your attention back to Genesis 8. And so teach you that Jesus Christ is a new ark, the fulfillment of the Noahic covenant, the fulfillment of God's promise and salvation, that through him you can be brought into the final promise of God, the promised land, so to speak, dry land. I, you know, I've been reading a lot of uh, different, you know, 
commentaries and, and other works just about John as we've been uh, working through this series. And many of them will get to this point where the Spirit descends like a dove and say something like, it's really not clear why the Spirit descends as a dove. And then kind of move on. Right? It's hard to know what exactly is being said. And then just kind of move on. Uh, and, and that's not, you know, uh, untypical. It's admittedly, you know, a little bit maybe different than what we're used to as far as Scripture goes, right? When, when we're told in Scripture, when it's really didactic and it just says, do this or think these things, you know, it's a little bit easier to just know, oh, that's, that's what I'm supposed to do with that. When it comes to narrative in Scripture, it's often a lot harder for us, at least as, as kind of modern Americans, to understand what exactly is being said or what exactly is, is being done. But I want to submit to you that it's actually not that hard to know why we're told that the Spirit descends like a dove. There are really not that many other times in the Bible that doves are mentioned. There's, I mean, there's a lot in a sense, but there's not that many. And the vast majority of the time, it has to do with things that are not, um, they're not directly connected to this kind of a text, right? Maybe it has to do with the fact that you could, if you were poor, you could substitute a dove or turtle dove uh, for your sacrifice if you couldn't afford something larger. Or, or sometimes it's, you know, doves are mentioned uh, simply as like just the fact that here's what a dove cost at the time of, of the, the exile or, or things like that, right? It's, it's, it's not necessarily uh, got the same symbolic overtones that you get in a passage like this. But when you come to a passage uh, where it's speaking of the Spirit of God and uh, water or baptism, both connected, right, when, when those are mentioned together, and especially when you're in a gospel where you know, in just a couple of chapters we're going to hear that the work of the Holy Spirit is like the wind, like the air or, or wind, and then a dove shows up too. We're told to think of a dove. When you put all of those things together, uh, there's really only one primary place that uh, it would draw your attention, just, just naturally. Right? I might, this might be a little hyperbolic. I have known to be hyperbolic at times, but I would almost say it's obvious why the dove is mentioned if you're really familiar with your Bible. Right? If you're familiar with the Scripture, it, it just fits. It makes sense. Right? You're used to this narrative already. You're meant to think of the flood to remember the flood, remember the time of Noah, remember the judgment of God, remember how on that day God destroyed the earth, but he didn't obliterate it, right? We're living on the same physical place that God destroyed and made new, in a sense, in the flood, but he didn't obliterate everything. Instead, he preserved life and humanity by covenant, by promise, in an ark. He didn't forget about Noah, but remembered him. And the sign that it was safe to
to return out into the world the sign that God had, had fulfilled that promise initially, right? There's, we, we get the sign of the rainbow, but even before that, we get the sign of the dove. The dove goes out. That's, that's how you know you have passed through the waters of judgment. And the dove disappeared at that time, right? Goes out and never returns. But narratively speaking, symbolically speaking, God is calling our mind back to remember that when his spirit descends like a dove. Right? It's not, it's not to say that Noah didn't send a real dove out. It's not to say that that's the same literal dove that now shows up. No, the, the spirit descended like a dove. I don't even think that we're necessarily supposed to read this and think, you know, a physical, that the spirit was, was visible like a dove, looked like a dove or something like that, but descended in the manner of like a dove. The spirit descended like a dove and remained, didn't return, didn't leave, but remained on Jesus. And so Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Noahic covenant. Just like he's the, the fullness of creation itself. He is the ark that carries you through the judgment of God. He is the one that brings you to dry ground out of the chaos and depravity and destruction of sin and the world. He's the fulfillment of the promise of God not to destroy the earth. Right? Do you see that? Do you, are, you, are you following that? Because that's how profound this moment is. We can read through you know, John's bearing witness about this in just a couple of verses, but this is, this is incredibly profound. And there are so many implications that flow from it about who Jesus is and what baptism is and how it is that the Holy Spirit works in the world. And it all comes to us in just those few words. He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So we're being told about this new creation that's begun, that Jesus Christ is in a sense a new ark, the fulfillment of the Noahic covenant, but that also means that Jesus is bringing about a new exodus. And there are too many, you know, connections that that we could make to go through them all in detail. But especially when you're thinking of the flood, the exodus should come to mind. They go, they go together. They're, they're connected, biblically speaking. You think about passing through water, as we said, of, of wind coming and making a way through the water. Moses, we're told, that when he was a baby, was placed in a basket. The word is ark. He was placed in an ark that where I... You know, I, I believe that word's only used twice for ark. I could be wrong about that, uh, but the specific word for the ark, like Noah built, I believe it's only ever used one more time. Don't quote me on that because I'm just, it's just coming off the top of my head. But, but Moses was placed in an ark and put out into the Nile. He then leads God's people through water after this wind blows and the waters part. And the Egyptians are destroyed as the waters come back 
over them. A new and greater exodus is beginning. That's what we're being told. That means that Jesus came to save his people out of bondage, out of slavery, that that he came as a greater Moses. He comes to bring deliverance and to lead his people, to bring them safely through the water of God's judgment, to bring them to their own land, to give them his words, his law, that they can live by. Right? Last week, we, we looked at how this gospel proclaims the superiority of Jesus to Moses. Right? And we see that here again, that he is the greater Moses, that he has come to accomplish what Moses could only do in part. He has come to, to fulfill, to fill out everything that Moses was and did. Of course, these aren't, you know, I'm, I'm pulling out creation story, story of the flood, the exodus, but this isn't even everything, right? If you know your Bibles, you know that there are other times when God's people are led through water, that the Spirit in one way or another is connected to it all. Think of the Israelites as they come out of the wilderness wandering and they cross what river? The Jordan River, which is where this narrative is taking place, in order that they might go and, and, and conquer the land, the Lord going before them, leading them. All of this is coming together in Christ, in Him, showing that it's all, it's all about Him. It always has been. But before we're done, we need to tie in one last idea that's being communicated in the Spirit descending and remaining on Jesus, and that is uh, the idea of anointing. That this is, a, this is a new anointing that is coming. Jesus was being anointed at his baptism, anointed by the baptism, but especially by the the descending of the Holy Spirit. And it tells us even more about what his mission was in the world. The Spirit descends and remains on him and it stays with him. He is anointed with water and the Spirit. So what does that teach us? Well, I want you to think for a moment. We're where does anointing show up in the Old Testament? Right? Who, who was anointed? What were they anointed for? There were three primary offices or three roles that people could play where they would be anointed in or among God's people. These were the offices of a prophet a priest, and a king. Prophets would be anointed in in some way or another and called to proclaim or speak the very words of God to his people. Priests were anointed and set aside for their role as representatives before God of the people 
representing God to the people, offering sacrifices and, and standing as intercessors, lifting the prayers of the people up to God. And kings were anointed in their role of ruling and reigning over God's people. Now, importantly, in the Old Testament, when the Spirit of God descended on someone, it was very often who? Right? When we read about the, the Spirit filling someone, it's almost always a prophet, a priest, or a king. Those who are anointed, those who are set aside for those particular roles. When the Spirit of God descends upon and remains upon Jesus, it is being proclaimed that he is the ultimate prophet and priest and king. That he is the one that has been given the very words of God to speak to us. Right? What, what will Jesus say later on? But everything that he says comes from the Father. He says nothing on his own accord, only what he's been given. It's being proclaimed that he is a priest, that he's been anointed to perfectly represent his people, to be a sacrifice for their sins, to make intercession for them. He is being proclaimed as a king, the true king, who at his ascension was seated on a throne, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, who rules and reigns, who is conquering all of his enemies and ours. And the spirit that he is anointed in, being proclaimed to be all of these things, doesn't leave him. The spirit stays with him. It's not like some of the kings of Israel. It's not like King Saul, who the spirit left. This is the true king. The spirit is always with him. The spirit abides with him. Congregation of Christ, if the spirit of God remains on him, and if it is Jesus that baptizes with the Holy Spirit, as John bore witness. It means that everything that we've just talked about, everything represented here, you know, a new creation passing through the, the waters of God's judgment, being freed from bondage and slavery to sin, being brought to dry ground, being anointed, all of that can only be given to you as you come to him. It can only be yours if you are his. Right? It, it is available to you, but only as you come to the one on whom the Spirit of God descended and now remains. You can't have the Spirit of God apart from him. Right? It's Jesus who gives the anointing of the Holy Spirit. John uh, will say in his epistles, will speak in his epistles about many who, who claim to be able to give anointing in some way or have some kind of special anointing. He says that there's many false Christs. Remember, Christ means anointed one. 
there, there are many false Christs. There's many anti-Christs that have gone out into the world. And there's many that will tell you that they can offer you all of the benefits of the Spirit of God, right? Of renewal and peace and comfort, of knowledge, of salvation, of safety and security from the judgment of God. There are many that will offer all of those things that come from the Holy Spirit. But it's only Jesus Christ that can actually give those things to you. Right? You need to be aware and realize that, that all of the blessings of God will only come to you by the Spirit as you come to Christ. That's it. Right? It's, it's exclusive because the Spirit of God remains with Him and only with Him. If you want to experience an act of new creation, right, where God can take you with exactly where you're at right now where you're at in life and make you something different right renew you breathe new life into you that is available but it's only available through the work of the holy spirit and the spirit remains on him so it comes from him if you want to be a new creation and be changed then you have to come to the one on whom the Spirit descended and remains. There are many others that will promise these things to you. Right? They'll promise you can experience all of, the, all of the benefits of the Spirit of God, but through other means. Right? They'll promise it through psychedelics or through the right lifestyle or through some kind of special knowledge that no one else has. But they can't actually give it to you. Because it only comes from the Spirit. If you want to be saved from the judgment and wrath of God, if you want to escape your guilt and be preserved on the day of judgment that's coming for you, if you want peace of conscience, peace with God, right? peace with others, shalom, fellowship, if you want to not have to feel like you always have to hide your sin, right? but feel free from it, knowing that it's all been taken care of. Well, that only happens as you come to Jesus Christ, as you come to the one on whom the Spirit descends and remains. There are many that will promise you that you can escape that judgment in various ways, right? They'll say you just have to accept yourself or, or stop repressing those desires that you think are wrong or you just have to ignore that guilty conscience. Find something else to focus on and, and ignore it all, right? Use some kind of meditative practice and so many other things that will be, be given to you as, look, this is the solution. This is what you can do, but they can't actually give you what you're looking for, right? There were many people in the days of Noah that mocked him as he spent so long working on this ark, trying to be obedient to what God had told him and revealed to him, right? There were many that condemned him. There were many that said, you don't need that. And yet, it was the only way that anyone was preserved and anyone not in the ark was destroyed. Jesus is that ark, right? He is the, the preservation of God. He is the promise of God. 
It's only in Christ that you can be freed from your bondage to sin, your slavery to self. Right? There, there will be many who will tell you and claim some kind of answer for your addiction, for your compulsions, for your overwhelming desires that have led you to destroy so much of your life and relationships. There, are, there will be many that offer you some way out. But if, if you don't have that fundamental transformation of heart and a freedom from that spiritual slavery that you're in, it won't actually fix anything. You might change some aspects of, you know, your outward life, but it, it won't solve the ultimate heart problem. You must be helped in both body and soul. And the only one that can give you that kind of exodus from your sin is Jesus Christ. It's the one on whom the Spirit descended and remains. And it's only in Jesus Christ that you can be anointed. And you can receive power from the Holy Spirit of God. Right? There's many that promise spiritual power, spiritual experience, spiritual life, but that only comes from the breath of God, from the spirit of life, the heaven-descended dove, right? the fire that, that comes down from heaven. And the spirit is only available through Jesus Christ. You can be. If you are a, a Christian, you have been called to be a, a lowercase prophet, priest, and king. Right? You, you can be anointed by God to share with others his gospel, to lead them to where they might find a sacrifice for their sins, to, to pray for them and know that God hears you and listens to you to rule and to reign on earth with Christ as he gives you further dominion and honor. You've been called and anointed by his spirit to be a prophet, priest, and king in him. And all of that is yours, but only as you receive it from Jesus Christ. Not from any other counterfeit source. Only from the one on whom the spirit descends and remains. And so John bore witness when he was baptizing the gospels bear witness to us. I'm bearing witness to you today that, that you can have the Holy Spirit. Or you can have that breath of life and you can have everything that is promised and, and showed forth in the descending of the Spirit upon Christ. But it can only be yours in Him. Only through Jesus Christ can you have that new creation, a new ark, a new exodus, only in him can you be truly anointed and have true spiritual life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would breathe upon us today. Fill us with your life, your spirit. We do pray, Father, for those who don't know you, who have not experienced all of the abundant blessing that comes from your spirit being poured out upon them. And we pray that you would fill them so today. Fill their cup to overflowing. Anoint their head with oil. And we ask, Lord, that those of us who know you, who have been filled 
with just that, that we would would not be distracted by the many promises of the world, but we would see all of your promises and their yes in Jesus Christ. That we would once again believe and so confess and so be filled with your truth and the spirit of truth. Holy Spirit of God, fill us, we pray, that we might leave here changed and renewed. Renewed after your image, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.